you and I, as believers in the Lord Jesus, Christians, meaning little Christ ones, have been called to follow in the footsteps of our Savior. I remind you of the classic call of the Lord Jesus to discipleship in Luke chapter 9 and verse 23. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The Apostle Paul put it in these words as he challenged his disciples by saying, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Finally, it was Peter who reminded the brethren in 1 Peter 2.21, For even unto, hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. This evening, in this text, John 18, we'll find in verses 1 and 4, Jesus went forth. And facing a period of unimaginable suffering, Jesus surrenders. We're going to see this is the text and where Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, comes there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has poured out his heart to God in prayer, facing the imminency of the cross, and in that whole process, and through that whole process, Jesus surrenders. You know how he surrendered? He did it prayerfully, he did it knowingly, and he did it obediently. How can this young man, Caleb Gehiwa, go to Japan? He has to surrender. And he has to do it prayerfully. He has to do it knowingly. And he has to do it obediently. How do you and I embrace the cross? of our daily life, with all the trials God enables us to go through the same way, prayerfully, knowingly, and obediently. So tonight, let's take a look at it. Verse 1, I'll read it again. And we see through this verse that Jesus went forth prayerfully. John 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples, over the brook Kidron, where was a garden, into the which he entered and his disciples. I want us to see two things through this verse. First of all, the significance of the garden. We know the name of that garden. It was Gethsemane. And Jesus often went to Gethsemane, this very place, with his disciples. It was a place of rest. It was a place to meditate. It was a place to pray. You know, the idea of a garden provides some very significant symbolism. Compare the first garden, where life began in the creation story, to this garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. Think about the Garden of Eden compared to the Garden of Gethsemane. Adam began life in the garden. Jesus came at the end of his life to a garden. In the garden, Garden of Eden, Adam sinned. 
in the Garden of Gethsemane, that's where our Savior conquered sin. In the Garden of Eden, Adam was defeated. In Gethsemane, Christ revealed his power over sin and was victorious. In the Garden of Eden, Adam chose his will over the will of God. In Gethsemane, Christ boldly surrendered his will to his heavenly Father. You know, it's significant that we note the meaning of this word, Gethsemane. It literally means oil press. That's what Gethsemane means. My wife has a very valuable tool in her kitchen. It's a garlic press, and it's used frequently. And I'm often using a little instrument to get all the garlic, the skins that remains in there, and packed it, removed, so it'll go through the washer nicely. But we can't live without that garlic press. In fact, we have two of them in our kitchen. We have three. I think we just have two. But anyway, the value of that garlic press is we want to get every last drop of garlic oil out of the garlic. And in Jesus' day, the olives were picked from trees and put into a press to make olive oil. And that process provides us a picture of suffering. Suffering in real life, in real time. Our Lord was preparing to enter into his own oil place. And it would be a time of unimaginable suffering. How did Jesus prepare for such a moment as that? Well, we've I want to direct my attention to the significance of prayer. You know, although John doesn't reveal it here in this text, this is the time when Jesus prayed literally. And you've seen the wall painting. I'll remind you of it. But this is when Jesus pr prayed and sweat those great drops of blood. It's, it's in Luke's Gospel, Luke 22, 44. We read these words. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. You know, sometimes we imagine that painting. Other people have tried to copy it. But you, you see it. It's Jesus leaning over that rock with his hands clenched in prayer. Jesus in the dark. Well, you know, if you were to look at Mark's gospel, Mark 14, verse 35, Mark records it this way. And he, Jesus, went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And it's possible that Jesus was in such agony in prayer at that moment that he would literally throw himself on the ground and then stand up and then walk away and fall to the ground again in prayer. Repeating the process. You know, the agony of our Savior reveals that Jesus knew exactly what he would be going through eventually. It wasn't, it wasn't the pain of hanging on the cross that was his horror. Nor was it the shame of the nakedness or the fact that his disciples were going to just spread out and 
abandoned him. But it was the fact that he was going to literally be the sin bearer of all mankind. But yet, Jesus went forth prayerfully. And in this example, Christ's surrender was an act of prayer. And his prayer was an act of surrender. Can I share this with you tonight? It is hard <coughs> to pray because it is hard to surrender. And it is hard to surrender to God when we do not pray. Prayer is the key to the surrendered Christian life. And through that discipline of prayer, you will nourish your soul of God. How long has it been? Since you've gotten on your knees and poured out your heart to God. So Jesus went forth prayerfully. But secondly, Jesus went forth knowingly. I want you to look with me at verses 2 and 3. And here we see Jesus knowing the reality of his betrayer. Verses 2 and 3. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place. For Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples, referring to Gethsemane. Jesus then, or Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus went forth knowingly. Knowing what? Knowing the reality of his betrayer's arrival. Did you know that all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all of them refer to Judas Iscariot this way, as one of the twelve? Every single time. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John refer to Judas Iscariot, the traitor, as one of them. They all call him one of the twelve. He's one of us. That's recorded in Matthew 26, 14. It's recorded in Mark 14.10. It's recorded in Luke 22.47. It's recorded in John 6.71. And to me, this is amazing in the light of his treacherous deed. This guy's one of us. He's one of the twelve. Why didn't they just call him a false disciple? They all identified Judas as the betrayer. But they never speak of Judas with hatred. Never. There must be a lesson here. For those times you and I are deeply wronged by those closest to us. Brethren, we should speak the truth, but not in anger, dripping from our tongue. In verse 3, we see Judas had attracted this large following. Notice the reference, it's called a band of men. Well, how many men were in the band? It's estimated over 600 men. It's not very likely that Judas actually brought that many men into the Garden of Gethsemane. But even if he had, it's interesting that Judas never realized that Jesus would willingly surrender to him. Dear friends, 
That's evidence of love. That Jesus had nothing to hide. He had nothing to lose. Those with nothing to lose are living in absolute surrender. So knowing the reality of the betrayer, Jesus went forth. Jesus went forth knowingly, knowing the realm of his own authority. Look at verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek you? These words in verse 4 present a deep, deep challenge to my own heart. In spite of the fact that Jesus is all-knowing, he went forth. Can I take a minute to apply that? Here's the challenge I find. If you knew the trials you would be facing in 2021, five years from now, 20 years from now, would you follow through in doing the will of God in your life? Brethren, I remind you that Jesus gave this warning to those who claimed to be his disciples. In Luke 9, 62, the Bible says, No man, having put his hand to the plow, and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Brethren, when the will of God is known, it must be done, as I said this morning, courageously. No matter what the opposition, no matter what the thought. Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is never in vain in the Lord. So Jesus went forth perfectly. He went forth knowingly. And finally, Jesus went forth obediently. I want you to notice verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it. And smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. Jesus went forth obediently, saying no to the sword. You see, Peter was angered after watching Judas walk up and kiss the cheek of his Savior. And all this, all, although this provoked Peter, his response was not in the will of God. Poor Peter made every single mistake possible. He fought the wrong enemy. He used the wrong weapon. He had the wrong motive. And he accomplished the wrong result. You know, although we might rejoice Peter's effort to defend the Lord. <laughs> Can't you see the crowd? Go for it, Peter! Yeah, that's right! A lot of people running around in our country like that too. His zeal is without knowledge. There's an application. When you and I get angry, it's easy to be tempted to do and say things that are not the world. That do not bring glory to God. And we can't justify those actions by saying, hey, I, I got angry. I, I lost control. I'm sorry. It doesn't go far. 
Sinful anger is always sin. And you and I must agree with God about our sin every time. And therefore, we need to remember the words of Paul, 2 Corinthians chapters 10, verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not but mighty through God to the point of strongholds. So, saying no to the sword. And Jesus said yes to the cup. Look at verse 11. Then said Jesus unto Peter, Put up thy sword into thy sheep. The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? You know, it was in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 39 where Jesus said these words. Oh my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as I will. And the cup symbolized the suffering Jesus would endure when the sin of all mankind was literally placed upon his shoulders. God the Father would turn his face away. Christ would be suspended on the cross. The disciples were familiar with the language of that cup. When they heard someone must drink the cup, they knew it would be a situation where they would go through a very bad experience. Let me make an application close. Brethren, Caleb, you and I never need fear with cups God puts in our hands. First of all, because Jesus has already drunk the greatest cup. Now we're only following his steps. Second, we do not need to fear the God, who is love, mixed the contents of And as our Father, if we ask Him for bread, He'll give us a stone. And the cup He prepares is never meant to destroy us. You and I can be sure we will of suffering. We will have our times of pain. Our hearts will be broken. But those trials are meant to make us like God. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 4 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us far. Loving Heavenly Father, 
Many of us only need to look back to a shadow and remember our times of pain, disappointment, suffering. But Lord, we wouldn't trade it now because you were so near. Help us to be an obedient people. Help us to know the depth of our soul. God loves me. For an everlasting love. May this bring you the greatest glory to receive first events. In Jesus' name.